Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. It's Thursday, the 2nd of September, and I'm Justin Roberts. For good or for bad, this will be the final time I host the Power Hour this week. Carrie Adam takes the reins as is customary for Fridays, and with the Biz News Spring Conference drawing to a close today, that means that Alec and the rest of the team will be back on Monday. But focusing on today, another interesting show lined up. The program starts with our partners at the FT, that's the Financial Times of London, as they bring you their daily news briefing, which is an informative summary of what's happening in the financial markets all over the globe. Then for the second time this week, we hear from 10X founder Stephen Nathan as he joins as co-host for tonight's program. There's been a number of JSE-listed heavyweights which have released results over the past 24 hours, such as Aspen Pharmacare, Discovery, Impala Platinum, and Suntum. Stephen Nathan was one of the highest rated analysts back in his heyday. Then he formed 10X Investments, which is one of the leading passive investment companies in South Africa. That is not to miss. Interestingly, two clips from the Business Investment Conference. Firstly, Gigi Alcock, the white Zulu who was born and raised in a mud hut in KZN. Gigi was telling us a few weeks ago that the informal economy in South Africa is absolutely thriving. It's booming. And that the unemployment numbers that were released not so long ago simply need to be taken with a pinch of salt. Another uh, snippet from the conference, Musi Maimani, the former leader of the opposition party in South Africa, otherwise known as the Democratic Alliance, he joins Alec Hogg. That's also not to miss. But in between both of those, my colleague Nadia Swart talks to Gabriel Turan, the CEO of Silo Cybrin, a pharmaceutical company looking to raise funding on the JSC in the next 12 to 18 months. How exciting. There's been no IPOs this year. IPO boom all around the world. But unfortunately, the JSC has simply missed it. In the markets today, the JSC All Share Index was lower at 66,500. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 33 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 77 cents to the pound, and 16 rand 98 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,815 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 27,500 rand. Brent crude is stronger at $72.60 a barrel. And Bitcoin is up, trading at around the 720,000 rand level. Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Thursday, September 2nd. And this is your FT News Briefing. YouTube's music streaming services hits a milestone and the trucking industry is pulling out all the stops to plug its driver shortage. Plus, we'll talk to our U.S. banking editor, Josh Franklin, about a growing but underbanked industry. A lot of companies, cannabis businesses, really only took money in cash, were unable to process electronic payments, so they they stored the cash in-house, and that elevated the risk of theft and burglaries. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The music streaming industry has been dominated by a few big names. Apple, Spotify, maybe even Amazon. Now there's another name muscling in, YouTube. YouTube has announced that its music streaming services reached 50 million paid subscribers. It's a sharp jump from last year and also a milestone for YouTube's owner, Google. These latest subscriber numbers come after failed attempts to get a footing in the market, attempts like YouTube Red. Experts say YouTube music is attracting users in emerging markets and also younger audiences. They say it's becoming to Gen Z what Spotify was to millennials half a decade ago. The FT has been reporting on a shortage of truckers in the UK because of COVID. Well, in the US, the number of truckers has been declining for years, and COVID just made that pre-existing shortage all the more excruciating. But now the truck companies are scrambling for new drivers and undertaking recruiting efforts that they've never undertaken before, and they're struggling to get people to bite. That's the FT's Steph Chavez. She says some U.S. trucking companies are now turning to the government for help bringing in more foreign drivers. There seems to be this small and potentially growing group of truck driving companies that wants the government to expedite the issuance of EB3 and H2B visas, which are employment-based visas. American trucking companies have been sourcing foreign drivers using those visas for a long time. 
But the pandemic kind of froze or slowed down that process for a lot of these companies. So yeah, I was talking to the chair of the board of the Oregon Trucking Associations, and he said he's trying to round up a group of about, you know, a dozen companies or so to go to Washington, D.C. and try to meet with lawmakers um, to try to advocate for getting some help expediting these visas. And they also want to add truck drivers to the Department of Labor's Schedule A list, which is basically a list of jobs that the government has deemed there are like not enough qualified individuals in the U.S. to complete the job. Steph, what have government officials said to this? Yeah, so one uh, one executive of a truck driving company told me that he's been meeting really or trying to meet, you know, pretty aggressively with lawmakers at local, state and federal levels. And that at one meeting, um, a government official asked him basically, like, do you really want me to try and help bring foreign workers into the U.S. faster when there are still so many people unemployed here in the U.S. because of the pandemic? And the executive told me that, yes, like that's absolutely what I want because, you know, I'm not getting any bites here. Um, and so he suspects that there's a bit of a an optics problem, right, that it's just he was he, he kept saying nobody wants to talk about this. That's Steph Chavez. She's a reporter for the FT and FT specialist. The cannabis industry in the U.S. is flourishing. 18 states have now legalized weed. More than half allow it for medical use. The industry is now worth about $20 billion by one estimate, and that's without having access to conventional banking. The FT's Josh Franklin joins me to talk more about how cannabis suppliers have been managing their money. Hey, Josh. Hey. So, Josh, why can't cannabis companies use regular banks? So cannabis companies are caught in a gap between state and federal law. So despite it being legal at the state level in a, in a number of states now um, over the last 10 years, most U- U.S. banks operate under federal law. So they deem the compliance risk of banking these cannabis companies in local markets as just too great for them to step into the space. So this means cannabis companies, by and large, struggle to have access to basic financial services like making deposits, opening bank accounts, processing electronic payments, uh, and taking out loans. Then how have cannabis companies been doing business, and how have they financed their growth without banks? It's been a bit of a journey for a lot of these companies. So initially, we saw the first wave of legal recreational cannabis markets come online starting in 2012. And really, those companies were either self-funded, took money from friends and family, or there was a kind of niche group of investors that were willing to, to get into the space. That's kind of what they did for funding. But a lot of companies uh, and cannabis businesses really only took money in cash, were unable to process electronic payments, couldn't store the money. Uh, so they, they stored the cash themselves um, at the, in-house, and that elevated the risk of, of theft and burglaries. Um, so it really wasn't a great situation for them. Given the, the size of the market and this untapped need for banking services, um, there has been a number of companies that have seen the opportunity here to serve an underbanked market. So we have seen gradual progress now. There are kind of this, these niche companies that have sprouted up to lend to cannabis companies to facilitate local banks that want to try to bank cannabis companies by offering compliance services, offering companies armored car cash pickups. So if you're taking, you know, 95% of your takings in cash, then that kind of gives them some certainty to transport it. Is this working for companies or are there disadvantages to having to use these specialized finance groups? So there's been a ton of progress in terms of cannabis companies' ability to get banked, but all of this comes at a price. You know, cannabis companies pay a lot more to borrow, they pay a lot more to, to make deposits than a normal company in an industry where compliance issues aren't quite as severe. Um, and this is at a time of very low interest rates in the United States when um, a lot of companies have access to cheap money. Cannabis is one of the only industries where you have double-digit borrowing costs. And depending on the, the size, borrowing costs can be even in excess of 20% per year interest payments. You know, Josh, given the size of the industry, do banks see an opportunity here? Do they, do they want to get involved? Given the size of opportunity, I think it's an industry that banks would would love to serve. So U.S. banks don't want to be left behind there. But I think it's still too small to to take the risk now for a lot of banks to to step into the space. 
they are looking for any progress or n- new guidance at the federal level in the United States to, to give them comfort to go in. There are a couple of initiatives. There's the so-called Safe Banking Act, which has been around um, in the House of Representatives for around about three years. It's passed a couple of times uh, with bipartisan support, but um, its kind of path in the Senate is is unclear. Uh, Chuck Schumer, the, the Democratic Senate Majority Leader, has also proposed legalizing cannabis at the federal level. Both of those initiatives would give banks greater comfort to bank the space, but also both of them, it's unclear uh, when they'll, uh, they'll actually would be, could enter into law. Joshua Franklin is the FT's U.S. banking editor. Thanks, Josh. Thanks very much. And before we go, we have a correction to make. Yesterday, we reported on the fraud trial of Elizabeth Holmes. She's the founder of the blood testing company Theranos. We implied that Theranos was a public company, but in fact, Theranos was a private company. We regret the error. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today for the second time this week is 10X founder Stephen Nathan. Stephen, although it's only been about 48 hours, it seemed like a lifetime. The weeks tend to drag and the weekends tend to move in dog years, but that's a story for another day. Lots to talk about on the results front uh, with lots of JSE heavyweights announcing in the past 24 hours. But first, the Social Development Minister Lindiwe Zulu withdrew a department's green paper on the Comprehensive Social Security and Retirement Reform, better known as the State Pension Plan, all for the better. However, they did say that further amendments will be made and finalized in due course. Your take. It obviously caused lots of concern amongst uh, citizens in terms of, you know, the government uh, uh, having much more control over another very important area of our lives. And given that the government uh, has not managed to do uh, much in the way of you know, positive commercially or in other government areas. Obviously, enormous concern that are, you know, could this be another form of nationalizing our pension funds or a 12% increase in tax? Um, you know, but, but, but what is remarkable, uh, is that the, that, is that, uh, social development has pulled this paper. Uh, and, uh, one of the, you know, uh, uh the comments from, uh, the minister was that, uh, our paper's been a bit misinterpreted and we want to clarify that. Um, but another issue is that uh, National Treasury said it wasn't properly consulted. And uh, National Treasury is the funding arm. So social development can say, yes, we want this. You know, these are the reasons why we think it's beneficial, but someone has to fund it. Uh, and, um, you know, National Treasury has said we haven't been consulted. Uh, and in the past, I mentioned previously uh, that uh, this is not new. Social development has um, promoted this 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 very uh, same uh, national fund uh, many years ago, starting in 2002 and then again in about 2007, 2008. Uh, and at that stage, uh, there wasn't a uh, meeting of the minds between National Treasury that said, um, you know, maybe this might be a great idea, but we don't know where the money is going to come from. And it's just remarkable that the left hand of government doesn't seem to know what the right hand is doing. And clearly that doesn't instill any uh, you know, confidence is already at a very, very low level. And, you know, one can only shake their heads, uh, heads and kind of say, well, you know, if you can't even uh, get it right between the departments before you put out a green paper, you know, what um, what confidence do we have that you can actually manage a very complex area like this? Exactly, Stephen. But onto the company front, Aspen released results after the bell yesterday. Once a darling of the JSE, has had a f- tough few years, but Saad and co have done a good job in steering the ship in the last 18 months. Before we get into the numbers, is investing in founders, in this case, Stephen Saad and Gus Attridge, something that you look for in an investment rather than an agent just drawing a salary with little skin in the game? Yeah, definitely. I think that people who found a company are passionate. Uh, they're determined. They're not professional managers. You know, they're not, I guess we spoke about government. It's not like a cabinet reshuffle where, you know, I was the minister of health and now I'm the minister of uh, public affairs. Uh, and, and, and to some extent, 
I mean, that's not a completely fair uh, analogy, but you do get professional business managers, you know, who kind of go from company to company and they may, they may do a good job as a professional manager, but, you know, there's always something unique about a founder where, you know, uh, they tend to be contrarian. Uh, they tend to take uh, 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 risks that, uh, that established companies uh, can't or won't take. Uh, and, you know, that's where, that's where disruption and innovation and outsized returns come from. If you look in a South African context, we could say NASPES outsized returns. Uh, it came from, you know, an innovative investment they made. Uh, Capitech, a completely new business model that's given you incredible returns. And you just, you know, that's where you're going to get those returns. At the same time, uh, you know, there's always risk associated with these companies and, you know, they're not all going to succeed. So, so you definitely do want to find uh, great founders, but you also, you don't want to only bet on one. You'd like to have a few of them in your stable. And, you know, as you said, Aspen, uh, incredible company. Yes, they did have a rough ride in 2019. Uh, their share price, I think, fell by well more than 50%. There was a very high level of debt they had. Um, but if you look through that cycle and you see the very strong results they've had today, I mean, it really is an incredible success story. And the vast majority of NAS, uh, of S. Aspen's uh, earnings are outside of South Africa. So it's not a South African uh, company, you know, over 80% of their uh, revenues are coming outside of South Africa. So that is an incredible achievement from a South African founded company. As is the theme with a lot of the JSE top 40 companies, most of them predominantly earn their earnings offshore. But staying on the in the same industry, the pharmaceutical companies profiteering from vaccines is a very controversial topic, and there's imminent booster shots coming soon. What's your take on it? At the end of the day, they are finding a solution to a critical issue. Yeah, so I think I think you know um, Aspen did give a number. They said 400 million of revenue came from vaccines. So they uh, they've only just started that program, and their revenue is 37 billion. So it's an immaterial number uh, for 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 them. I mean, you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, you want you want um, companies and institutions to find problems uh, solutions to important problems. And, you know, the COVID pandemic and a vaccine is one of the biggest problems, uh, we've, we've, we faced. And, you know, if you didn't have a, a, um, a motivated, uh, a private sector, uh, that was there for, um, for profit, uh, you know, it's unlikely that we would have made any of these strides. So I think that, you know, one's got to see it in that context because you can say, yes, um, you know, the social good outweighs any profit motive, but, if there was no profit motive, a lot of these, you know, the Moderna vaccine and Pfizer and uh, <laughs> Aspen, you know, they wouldn't have the money to invest in R&D. So they wouldn't have that, uh, you know, that capability and that technology in order to do it. Uh, at the same time, you know, what you don't want to see is you don't want to see, um, you know, taking advantage uh, of, 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 of vulnerable people or vulnerable countries. Um, you know, so you'd like to see some form of, uh, responsible capitalism. And, you know, I think, you know, by and large, from what I can and see, I think the pharmaceutical, uh, industry has been, um, you know, relatively, uh, responsible. I know that, uh, as, as an example, J and J, they said that they won't make any money, um, out of the vaccine. So they will do that at cost. Other companies like Pfizer are making uh, uh, profits, um, but I certainly wouldn't begrudge them because, you know, if there wasn't a, a solution to this pandemic, you know, we'd all be worse off for that. On to Impala Platinum from uh, Pharmaceuticals to Resources, they released results. The general commodity counters have kept the JSC above water for the past two years and profited handsomely from what some call unsustainably high commodity prices. I'm sure you've seen some vicious commodity cycles in your time. It just seems to me like the rise is fast and great, but the fall can be just as hard. Yeah, you know, um, being an investor or maybe even more importantly, running a, uh, a resource company uh, is not for the faint hearted because it really is, you know, boom or bust. Uh, there's probably more bust. There's more, uh, uh, hard times than there are good times. But when those good times come, it's important that you can capitalize on it. And as you say, you know, Impala Platinum is an unbelievable example of that because three years ago, uh, you know, their, their share price, uh, was below 20 rand. That was three years ago. Uh, to, today, uh, they've announced results where for the full year, they've declared a dividend that's over 22 rand. So they've declared a full year dividend that is bigger than their share price was three years ago. The share price is up 10 times, you know, and that kind of talks to the boom uh, bus cycle. And also, you know, these companies are very highly leveraged. Um, so, you know, hats off to them. Well done. Uh, they've been fantastic contributors to our 
tax receipts. You know, we've spoken before that that's our get out of jail free card. Uh, the, the, the tax that these mining companies are paying has been enormously beneficial to, uh, to, to South Africa. Uh, and, you know, long may it last, but as you say, it doesn't look like it can last forever because, you know, Implats is trading on a PE of below four. So clearly the market doesn't believe it's sustainable. And even with these fantastic results, I think the share price is of 6%. Um, you know, but one's got to take a, a longer term view through the cycle. You know, and I just want to say, you know, well done to everyone associated with the Amplats because this really is a great result. Discovery out with results too. The share is sharply lower. Last I saw 8% down. What stood out for me was the huge mortality provisions given the higher than expected deaths amongst their clientele. Although I thought personally there's been a lot of theater involved with the handling of this virus, the insurers are telling us that this virus is actually no joke. Yeah, so, you know, you're right. If you look at, uh, you know, which industries are particularly badly hit, obviously, you know, we often th- think about travel and leisure because, you know, people can't travel. They're not staying in hotels, uh, you know, the restaurant industry, the liquor industry. Um, but, you know, right up there would be the life insurance industry. And, uh, in fact, it was yesterday, I think, where CISA, uh they put out stats showing that uh, uh, claims paid uh, had uh, – had increased by 43% year on year. So that's quite phenomenal. They paid out a million claims. Uh, now, now, just bear in mind, that's not a million people dying because uh, one person may have more than one policy. Um, but, but the bottom line is that there's been a 43% increase in the value of uh, death claims paid by the life insurance uh, uh, industry. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's obviously difficult uh, uh, to absorb on your balance sheet and in your income statement. Um, but the life companies by and large, you know, have done a pretty good job of doing that. And as you say, discovery would be impacted uh, because of that. I think discovery as well. I mean, one thing I wasn't certain of is they put out a trading statement where they seem to guide to sort of earnings per share, headline earnings per share of about uh, four rand 50 for the six month period. But they came out with uh, headline earnings at much a much lower level at three three fifty seven cents, so I'm not sure if that is you know possible reason why the the share is off sharply today. Yeah, that is strange, especially considering in those trading updates they try to be as conservative as possible. But staying on discovery, it's one of those businesses with a large runway. It's becoming from a medical insurer almost to a conglomerate of sorts. Again, it goes back to the innovative founder story. Those businesses, for the large part, seem to outperform agent-run companies. Not to take Kathy Wood's investment as gospel, but if ARCO investing in Discovery, they must fancy its avenues of growth going forward. Yeah, I think you know Discovery is, a, is, is as you say, you know, it's an incredibly innovative company, and it's a company that stands out on a global scale, not just a South African scale. You know, and I remember when Discovery launched the medical aid. Uh, you know, that was a global innovation where um, they added a savings account. So, you know, most people would try and use the, the the medical aid as a piggy bank and maximize it. And Discovery changed the behavior by giving people incentives, saying it's your money. And if you don't, if you don't uh, spend it, uh, it's actually yours to save. Uh, and there was a Harvard Business uh, School case study on that, and they got an enormous amount of publicity. You know, and from that, they've, you know, they've rolled out Vitality. Uh, you know, that's also been a... a, a a game changer. They're now going into China. They're in the UK. Uh, their technology has been licensed. So it's a very interesting company from uh, from that perspective. Um, the challenge really for them is to be able to monetize that uh, because it's not always that easy to monetize it. Sometimes your partners take the lion's share uh, of that and you've still got to invest in those ventures. So as of yet, you know, even if you look at uh, Ping An in, in, in China, the growth rates are strong, um, but uh, the profitability is still relatively small. I think uh, the, 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 the profits were something like 140 odd million uh, for the six months and their total profits are about 5 billion. So, you know, it's still, still, still quite small. So, you know, opportunities and challenges and, and, and I think the bank, you know, the bank is a bit of a different uh, uh, animal where, yes, it might be innovative, but, you know, you're investing in South Africa. So you're investing in a low growth environment. Banks are players on the macro economy. It's hard for banks to do well if the economy is not doing well. And it's a highly competitive area and they lost a billion rand in the six months. So, you know, there's kind of pluses and minuses, but to their credit, they are innovative. As you say, they're not standing still. Uh, There's a lot of exciting things that are going on there. I'm Jasper Roberts of Biz News and you've been listening to 10X founder, Stephen Nathan. We all watched Ramaphosa talking while a blood bank 
was being looted, which is a very similar story. What the hell were they doing breaking into a blood bank? So just to the thing about the Zulus being dominant, I met a Malawian guy who spoke very good Zulu. I said, yo, you speak good Zulu. He said, yo, you know, you have to do this if you're not Zulu. He said, uh, it's like if you have a dog, you don't learn how to bark. You, you, you know, the dog must learn, come here, go there, sit down, whatever. He says, Zulus are like that. They would think the rest of people are dogs. They must learn how to do that. They won't learn how to bark. Uh, and I think that's very true, and, and it is true of that. And, and uh, I mean, there's Why? some... Why? Why? Uh, it's a very uh, patriarchal society, a very proud society, so there's a positive side to it. Um, but the negative side to that is almost a, you know, looking down on the rest of, of, of the, the tribes. And, and um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to it. Uh, uh, but, but it's a very cultural thing as well. You know, Zulus are taught men are this and, and, uh, and, and, and um, you know, it's, it's a very, um, and it's in many ways a very violent, uh, aggressive society. Uh, so... And, and that comes across. And but for instance, on the mines... Particularly the traditional... On the mines, Zulus don't work underground. They'll work on top, but they'll, they, you won't find Zulus no. underground. Why, so why Zulus, Zulus always chose to be in certain sectors. Um, so they were in the mines, for instance, in Kimberley. And one of the reasons they did that is that the uh, chiefs and kings sent them to Kimberley, go and uh, mine and, and, get, and, and get guns. And so that's well documented that they were used to go and work in the mines in Kimberley. But they primarily chose the construction sectors and the security sectors. And particularly Majing Elana or the security guys were primarily always Zulu. There was always a Zulu joke that if you got a, um, that uh, if you um, crossed a Jew and a Zulu, you would get um, a security guard who owned the building. <laughs> and... Um, so, so the, the Zulus always were in those specific sectors, and what they did is they got jobs for each other within those sectors. They ended up almost dominating those sectors. And the second question, why did they loot surgery? So, so I think there were two parts to that. The first was collateral damage. People were going to the mall or from the mall, there's a spaza shop and so on, and they did that. Uh, but that doesn't reflect on a surgery or something. There was a very, that's why I said there was very specific decisions to go out and create maximum impact. Um, and, 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 you know, that is not the actions of someone who is poor. It is not the act. It is a deliberate act. Um, and that uh, WhatsApp, uh, the, the Twitter handle or WhatsApp handle, the lady who was just arrested, is PTPT. PTPT means create maximum chaos. You know, if there's this PTPT, there's chaos and confusion. And it wasn't about empowerment, it wasn't about enrichment, it was about creating. So I believe that within the groups who were looting, the bottle stores, whatever, those were the people who were just helping themselves, but there were specific people target that mall, and within that mall target these spaces, uh, target, you know, which was creating maximum uh, confusion. And I would say that that was no mistake. They weren't walking down the road. They were like, in this area, there's that place and that place and that place. And even if you look at the, uh, you know, in the, the, the 80s and, and, and late 70s, you found that there were certain people who were seen as either collaborators or um, business people who, who, who were then targeted by the ANC or, or, or whatever at the time, and, and this is similar, is that actually you're benefiting from the system, we're going to, to create confusion. Gigi, uh, thanks for that uh, insightful and uplifting jolt of good news. Um, what would you like us to take away from that? I guess it's more than simply opening our eyes to what's going on. What would you like the business community to actually do with that information? Sure. So, uh, so, 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 well, the first of all is, is I believe in, in uh, um, passion-fueled optimism. I think we have to look at our society and our country differently and more optimistically and, and, and look through the, the bad news stories and, and actually have a more balanced, if it's not optimism, at least have a more balanced view and an informed view, view 
particularly based on data and insights and real information. And as business people, I'm startled by how little information people have about these spaces that are there. And I'm not saying across the board, there's some people, Transaction Capital is an extraordinary business involved in the taxi industry, and they finance taxis based on an understanding of how profitable a route is, not on someone's books and so on. So, so, so you know, let's understand this society more. And, and as a business sector, uh, look at, 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 at where the opportunities lie. I also think most importantly, there's a massive opportunity to do business with the sector in reciprocal business relationships or aggregation models and so on. Uh, you know, there's a massive opportunity for financing these, these businesses. I personally have invested, I sold my business uh, in the space and have inv investing in a number of these kind of businesses because I think these are the real opportunities, the unicorns if there are, or even if they're just horses, um, you know, I, I, this is where the space is. There's opportunities for financing. There's opportunities for supply. There's opportunities, uh, um, you know, in, 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 a, in a range of different um, uh, spaces here um, in technology and, and so on. Uh, I can't go into too much detail about it now, but I believe that um, we can really transform the sector. The two and a half billion rand uh, cheese slice is an example. You know, there's an opportunity, and part of that business was built around growing quarter outlets as well as selling cheese slices. So, so you know, if if we look at the sector differently, there are massive opportunities to make money as a business person, um, but at the same time to elevate those guys. That guy like a Gobano and so on. You know, supplying that guy and helping him build his business creates an opportunity for Kobano and creates an opportunity for a, 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 a chicken supplier, as an example. Uh, and I think there's a multitude of different ways which we can support these businesses. We have to change our mindset, though, because there are no guarantees in these spaces. As much as there's no guarantee when you invested in PayPal or you invested in Tesla or invested in, in whatever um, business. So it's a little bit of it is venture capital type business. Uh, and, 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 and yet, you know, everyone's, the, the formal space is flatlining and this space is emerging and, you know, once you see a bandwagon, it's too late. You know, right now is the time we should be investing and in looking at innovative ways of, of, of involving ourselves in that sector uh, and, um, and, 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 and there is real, real opportunity uh, in that space and I believe, I don't believe in charity I don't believe in employing unemployed people because they're unemployable. I believe in the fact that if the people are doing something out there, even if it's selling snacks to school kids, that those are the people we should be working with or employing and so on. And because I don't believe in charity and I don't believe in creating jobs for unemployed people, if someone's unemployed, genuinely unemployed in this country, they're unemployable. I can tell you that. I've tried this exercise. Don't try and create jobs for that. Maybe a youth leaving school is different. But if you find someone who's doing some sort of little activity, some hustle, renting a back room or whatever, those are the people who there's opportunities and they are denied opportunities to grow those businesses because they don't have access to capital, technology, and, and training and, and enablement of, of various ways. Uh, so, so if we look at that and we build business models that adapt to that, there are huge opportunities to make millions and millions of rands and uh, at the same time elevate those businesses. So Gabriel Teron joins me now. He's the CEO of Silo Cyber Pharmaceutical, which has recently announced its plan to list on the JSE. So Gabriel, Silo Cyber, tell me about the company. <laughs> Where do you want me to start? So, At the beginning. Oof, that's three years ago. We started in 2018. So we started as a cannabis company. We put our application in to grow um, legal medicinal cannabis. We received our cannabis license in 2020 to cultivate um, cannabis. There's about 28 of these licenses issued to date. Um, recently, and this is why we made uh, the media now this week, is we were awarded a manufacturing license now to cultivate further process and cultivate uh, um, further process cannabis flower into oils, topicals, tinctures, you name it. And then also final packaging, final labeling, ready for end user. So that's what makes us very different to anybody else currently. 
Um, your GACP, your cultivation license, only allows you to basically bulk uh, package and send overseas. You're not allowed to sell it to the local market whatsoever. Um, you're also not allowed to do final packaging. So with the new CGMP license, the manufacturing license, we now can go all the way to end user. So, and even hopefully if the regulator allows, local market as well. It's incredible. And so what's your background? How did you get to the place where you founded Silosabin? My background is very diverse. Um, I, I did a degree as a, in, a informatics degree, which is system programming. I did my honors degree in informatic, uh, internal auditing. So then I started my career as an internal auditor. Um, soon after starting my articles, I went to SAB as an internal auditor, the breweries. Um, after that, I started at uh, a R&D uh, tech company with a partner. Um, about two years after that, I split off. I then started a advertising agency um, with a partner. That was around about 2008. Um, 2012, I got a little bit tired of it. Um, brought in an additional partner. And then I got appointed as a non-executive board member on SAFCO or at SAFCO, which is South African Forestry Company Limited, which falls under the department DPE, um, Public Enterprises. And soon after my appointment there as a non-executive board member, there is a whole long story, but um, at the board meeting in 2015 December, um, the CEO and CFO resigned, and um, after the, the, the board basically commissioned a forensic investigation, and then I was appointed as acting CEO. Um, for It was supposed to be three months while they filled the position, and it turned out to be two years. Um, yes. <laughs> so, and, and during that time... Um, the company excelled. Um, we, in my, where I had a full term, we had um, the highest turnover the company's ever seen. We had a um, unqualified audit report, and we made profit that year. So, they then offered me the the position full time. Um, I declined it, and in 2017 December, the new CEO started, and in 2018, I founded Silicon. So, yeah, that's been the journey. So this week, um, this is days after you announced plans to list psilocybin. Then the South African government unveiled their master plan <laughs> to harness a 28 billion rand cannabis industry. Mm. Is this purely coincidental? I believe so. <laughs> I would not. I don't. I don't know. I have to ask. <laughs> it, it must be. It must be. Okay. So the legalization of cannabis. It's still. It's. I mean, legal progress has been made. Um. But you must have encountered some serious challenges along the way. Can you tell me about them? The biggest challenge when you start off in this business, you think the challenge is to get your license. And yes, it is quite a, a tedious process to get to that point. Um, once you obtain your license, you only realize this is just the beginning. It's like, it's like you thought you're on the final lap, but then only it's like, no, 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 you still need to go. And what we realized was, even though you have a cultivation license in South Africa, it does not necessarily get recognized by other countries for export. Yet your license only allows you to export. So it puts cultivators in a very difficult position because they've invested a lot of money into this business. And now they believe that once they get the license, they can start your cultivation and that that license will allow you to export only to find out that Europe will say to you, you are not EU GMP, so we're not interested in buying your product. Um, so it, it comes with a whole bunch of other problems and, and it's literally one after the other. Um, but having said that, I believe that it is becoming a little bit easier globally to, to get our product. And, and this new license definitely makes it much easier for us. Um, since we've, we've received the CGMP label, it's, it's been so much easier to talk to the international market. And, and with that, we have signed agreements um, for Australia. We've, we're working with a, a group in Brazil and now also in the UK. So 
it, it, it's definitely helped us a lot. Um, yeah, so I'll leave it at that. So taking these challenges into account, it's not an easy company to establish. So why cannabis? <laughs> why cannabis? To be honest with you, and, and, and if we had more time, I could tell you the whole story, but how it happened for me and, and it, everything that has happened to date was purely gut feeling. Um, I was sitting on my bed one day in 2018, July, and I, I was on YouTube and I saw an indoor grow facility and I told my wife now, this is what I want to do. And she said to me, oh, go for it. And a week later, I found myself in America, in San Jose, at a cannabis conference. Um, at that point, I did not know anything about cannabis. I didn't know about THC being a psychoactive and CBD being another cannabinoid. I, I knew nothing. Um, but I literally just went on gut feel this entire journey. Um, and I've made friends throughout the globe. Um, the people that's involved in this company is absolutely amazing people. The people that you see maybe on our website, that's not everybody. There's a whole bunch of other people behind us helping us getting into the industry, helping us with information. It's, it's really phenomenal. So cannabis is merely our beginning. It's, it's where we started. It's not where we want to go. So the next thing I, we probably saw is psychedelics. So we definitely want to venture into the psychedelic realm, um, starting with um, psilocybin, hence our name. Um, yeah, that was my next question. Yeah, I just spelt it a little bit wrong, but but that's pretty <laughs> much it. Um, but but definitely psychedelics. But but I was introduced in this whole journey. I was introduced from that conference. Actually, I met someone and and he introduced me to the whole term of biohacking. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the term biohacking, but it's basically the pursuit of longevity, better performance and health through the use of supplementation devices and, and lifestyle, if I can call it that. Um, it's, it's really amazing stuff. Um, at the time, I thought it's insane, but now I'm a firm believer and that is one of the cornerstones that this business is built on, um, is, is basically to, to take those principles, take the um, pharmaceutical principles and the biotech principles and combine all of them to, to bring one solution to market. And what kind of uh, issues can pharmaceutical, I'm not, not pharmaceuticals, these psychedelics address? What's so, the potential that they can do? So if you look at the research, so I'll, I'll give you a couple of stats, which is very interesting. So there's about 350 million people that suffers from depression worldwide. And every one minute, 40 seconds, there's a suicide, depression related. So the stat on that is about a million people per year pass away from depression. That's the ones that we can measure. Put that in perspective, 4.5 million people passed away from COVID. So that's 25% of them, if, if, if you do the math. So, but the, the, the focus is not on depression. If you look at um, post-traumatic stress, psychedelics was now shown, and there's clinical studies that prove this, a 76% cure rate of post-traumatic stress using psychedelics. And the specific psychedelic use was MDMA. So psychedelics is coming back. It's coming back strong. Um, on the depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress side, it, it is a phenomenal, phenomenal um, substance to use, obviously under in therapeutic um, environments, and then there's a whole another movement which forms part of the biohacking community, which is massive, and it's called microdosing. And a lot of your listeners will probably be familiar with microdosing. Um, there's a whole bunch of books out on this, and in one of these books, the the writer said he interviewed ten billionaires, and all of them said that they they use psychedelics in one form or the other to enhance their mental capacity and creativity. So it's 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 coming back and it's coming back very strong. And at what stage do you think that the sort of 
legal framework is actually going to allow the implementation of this because I mean it's taken so long to get to this point with cannabis. Yes. Hopefully cannabis paved the way for for all of these things to to come in. If you look at globally what's happening, Canada's already opened up for psychedelics. Um uh, Colorado opened up, Oakland opened up, Jamaica is open. So a lot of these countries are opening up. Some of the first listed companies are now on the New York Stock Exchange that deals with psychedelics. So this is happening. Um, hopefully, South Africa will see that this is a massive opportunity for, for getting foreign investment into the country. And hopefully, we won't be behind the suit to this time again, um, like what happened in cannabis. Yeah. So the opportunity is there. It is a matter of... Currently, psilocybin is a Schedule 7. So it means only research allowed, but you're not allowed to commercially sell it. Um, okay. We've applied for that research permit um, with the regulator. So hopefully soon we can start research on that. Um, we've also in the process of partnering with a Canadian company um, that is going to IPO in the next four to six months, specifically on the psychedelic side and mushrooms. So we're in the process of, of partnering with them as well. So it's happening, it's happening fast. And hopefully South Africa will reschedule and, and get with the program. I'm so pleased that you, you, you brought up HHHLEMA because many people sitting here would, would what happened in Zambia, it, it just probably passed us by. Maybe you can just unpack it in a, in a very short uh, yeah. nutshell. What happened in Zambia? Because there you had the, the ANC, uh, effectively, getting voted out of power by a opposition leader who tried, was it five times, five elections? Yeah, yeah. And the, 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 uh, the, the president of Zambia initially said, he's not leaving. He says it was fixed, but he left. And he's gone. And you were at the inauguration. What an amazing story. Perhaps you can just share that briefly from yeah, my perspective. And, and I think, to me, one is Edgar Lungu, the former president of Zambia, and I think he must be given credit for having conceded power eventually. But what was going on in Zambia, clearly, I mean, they had a police state. My experience at the airport taught me a lot about democratic practice that had failed. In fact, when I went to go see HH at the time, he'd been locked up for simply not moving out the way of a presidential motorcade. Just, just say that again. He'd been locked up? He'd been in jail, and I was attending his preliminary trial, and literally, literally, because as the president's motorcade was behind him on a way to a rally, he wouldn't move. And they said, you're going to jail. And I remember speaking to his wife on the phone and listening to a story about the fact that we, we still don't know. They just arrived, they picked him up and put him in jail. So young people of Zambia, and that's, that's the thing for me that was beautiful to see. I mean, I, 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 you'd swear COVID doesn't exist in Zambia. They had a super event. So if anyone shakes my hand at the end of this, I have the Lusaka variant, if you like. <laughs> I've got many variants. But, <laughs> but as I sat at that stadium, it was like thousands of young people who took it upon themselves to say Bali, who they call him affectionately, who's Akiende Ichilema we're going to vote for him and, and they turned out on the day despite police intimidation, voted the elections were declared and, and I think what I experienced at the stadium was Zambia's 94 moment the line that I found unbelievable in the speech of the president on the day was he said this is not a transfer of power but it's people taking back their power so I thought it was a very helpful device to tell people that if he doesn't do his job, they will have him removed also. So, so I, I find the Zambian story very inspiring because, to your point, this is post-Kenneth Kaunda's country. This is post-Edgar Lungu. The PFP, I think, is Lungu's party. Now we're down to uh, the UPND, which, is, which was founded... Literally, I think it's 2009 it was founded. So this is a fairly new organization. Five elections on, and HH took over the leadership. He is educated internationally. He's a businessman, so he has a, cent he has a centrist view on how things should work, and he's focused on restoring Zambia for the future. And I think it's a great development for that. But even not only starting there, 
the beautiful thing about it is that if you were following the same story in the 60s, you'd say it was Samora Michelle, Kenneth Kaunda, and then you get to Robert Mugabe, and then South Africa were last. So the wave of change open, happens that way. So the Malawian election, the president there, Lazarus Chikwera, also a good friend of mine, were part of a partnership of opposition leaders in the SADC region, has just won, won the election after they tipexed out ballot papers, etc. That went to court. He then ran, had a rerun. He won. He's now the president there. Zambia has just had his change. I think, actually, if Zimbabwe didn't have the fairly awful elections they had recently, we could have seen change there, and I think that's what's next. And so and I think South Africa will follow likewise. So I'm, I'm much more optimistic electorally about this, this region more than ever before. We, we, we are looking for green shoots pretty much everywhere, especially in this province at the moment. One more question, and then, Graham, I can see you as an ex-politician yourself. You're ready to, to, uh, to give Muzi the, uh, the third degree. The, again, something just for a little bit of explanation, the changes to the Electoral Act. Uh, everybody sitting here today knows you uh, from, from your public profile, but many of them would have thought, uh, oh, it's just another politician. He just wants to get power, etc. However, the way you've unpacked it today, and particularly that change in the Electoral Act, could you just explain how it came to be being? Because that was a big fight over yeah. many, many years in the yeah. first place. And where your epiphany came, that that was what you decided that you wanted to do yeah. with your contribution to the country. Well, the Constitution articulates the fact that public representation does not need to be on the basis of a party. So it describes power to the people and it describes the fact that public representatives can occur. When we wrote the Electoral Act, suddenly there was just a view that said only political parties can contest for elections. And so we were able to take, through the New Horizon movement, that particular clause to say it was at odds with the Constitution in saying that actually public representation didn't only need to be on the back of just party politics, but individuals would be able to do that. And then I'd been a big fan of Francel Slabert and his work, not only him as an individual, as a sharp mind, but his proposal about a constituency-based model. And I say this so that the question that comes from a politician knows where I sit on this issue is that I used to find it quite astounding when I was leader of the opposition if three people called me, it's like one of those jokes, right? If, if, if a member of parliament, a donor, and a voter called, which order would you take the calls? Right? And in truth, the voter would be last, the donor would be first, and the fellow MP would be second. And I thought that's abnormal. <laughs> And it's playing itself right now, even in this COVID time. You literally, politicians only come to you every five years and then, again, go out with their business. And I realized, for me, the epiphany, as you say it, I was at a gender-based violence event, and it so happened that President Ramaphosa came to speak there. And I could hear as he was speaking, like a good preacher, he'd lost the audience, so he started to say things that were very populist, like, well throw away bail sentences for, 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 for rapists, etc. And the crowd was like, yay. And as we were walking back to Parliament, I've got a fairly good relationship with the President. I put my arm around him. I said, Mr. President, there, there are a few things I fear. Is that what I experienced outside there was absolute rage. But the next time those citizens are coming back here, there won't be an army big enough to protect anybody. And secondly, this institution of parliament no longer speaks to those people. And that has been, I, I, literally on the day, it's probably the safest way to answer the question, not only why I resigned as leader of the opposition, but I resigned from party politics, is because I thought to myself, the system as we have it now is unworkable. And it is simply not going to deliver the sort of accountability that citizens want. Did you pray on it? Did I? Pray on that Absolutely. decision. It, it took me... Uh, one, it was a very painful period, but two, it was a time of deep reflection and prayer. And I've always felt I've been led 
spiritually in that way. When I joined the DA, I mean, it was a fairly abnormal decision for my family. It felt like I was telling them something out the blue to not use the colors. But, but having prayed about it and felt a conviction, and I had a privilege to serve as leader of the opposition, so I don't, I don't resent the moment for one second. But given those times, it took a lot of prayer and conviction to say, I feel this is the best decision. I was leaving a really well-salaried job. I could have won the Congress, so I wasn't worried about the politics. And I was going into an abyss. Felt like that Genesis moment, Abraham not knowing where he was meant to go, went anyways. And I knew I had a conviction to say, I've got to go do something. And I'd be willing to bet the risk to say, whatever my family goes through, whatever we do, I'd continue to go serve this cause because I felt it was that deeper conviction. So unless you have that, I think it becomes a convenient decision. This interview is brought to you by First Rand. I'm Mila from Tilburg for Biz News. In the quietest corner of the Karoo in South Africa stands the 64 dishes of the Meerkat radio telescope enabling leading scientists and researchers to conduct research on the center of the Milky Way, 25,000 light years away from Earth. Meerkat is a precursor of a much larger project to build the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, in South Africa and Australia that will extend into eight countries. It was given the go-ahead in June 2021. Upon completion, it will be the world's largest radio telescope. It is a testament to South African scientific capability and innovation. And Professor Justin Jonas of Rhodes University is the scientist engineer who is regarded as the founder and driver of this ambitious project. Professor Jones told Biz News about the road to get to the adoption of the project, how it created a new generation of scientists, how data was pouring from Meerkat, and his experience in developing ventilators and dealing with the health department in South Africa, which made him an even bigger believer in a systems engineering approach. Well, we've had radio astronomy in South Africa for quite a long time, since the 1960s, really. And you know, radio astronomy itself is a very young science because it relied on radio. And that's only been around for you know, a century or so. But we, we had some small facilities, or by, by world standards, for small facilities in South Africa and particularly the Hartbeesuk uh, Radio Observatory up in, in Gauteng. But you know, towards the, the beginning of this millennium, you know, we became aware of this international project to build really the biggest radio telescope in the world. It was called the SKA. Thinking had started in about 1990, in fact, people had, had been sitting down and saying, this is what we need to do. You know, in order to stay current in science, your instrument has to uh, grow bigger and bigger, almost exponentially, because you, you just do all the science that you could have done with the one that you have, and you have to get the next bigger, better one. And radio astronomy had got to a point where to build the next bigger one would require something 10 to 100 times bigger than what was available. And that was, the, for one thing, a big technical challenge, but also, of course, you know, a financial challenge because um, you know, this would really be an expensive instrument. And it was realized right from the start that this thing would have to be international. Uh, you would need to uh, harness the minds of the engineers and scientists from all countries or large number of countries and importantly, the money to build this thing. It was no longer going to be one country could do this. Well, certainly, you know, uh, normal kind of countries, and perhaps the US might you know, do such a thing. And in fact, they've got a project going, which is in a way parallel to, you know, to the SKA. So South Africa had a good legacy in, in astronomy in general, both in optical and uh, radio. And of course, the, the gamma ray telescope, the HES gamma ray telescope in Namibia. The Southern Hemisphere is a good place to do astronomy for all sorts of reasons, you know, wide open spaces is one of them. And so yeah. uh, we... Well, at least you can see the stars here. You can see, and, and in the case of radio, you can find radio quiet places because with a radio telescope, the, you know, the equivalent to a dark sky is to be far enough away from as many radio transmitters as you can get because those are the things that blind us. So, of course, you know, in you know, Southern Africa, we have such places, you know, Karoo in, in, in particular. So we built, you know, in about 2000, you know, we, the SALT optical telescope was being built in Sutherland. And the then Department of Arts, Culture and Science and Technology, you know, which is now these days a Department of Science and, and Innovation, together with the National Research Foundation said, well, look, 
you know, we're building salt. Now, what's the next big thing we're going to do in astronomy? We have a, a geographical advantage in astronomy. Is there something that we should be looking at? And so um, ideas were asked, you know, for, for, and we had a little seminar. And people had persuaded me that perhaps I should go look at this SKA thing and see whether it was something South Africa could be involved in. I made some contacts you know, with some of my colleagues abroad, and they said, sure, must, no, we'd love to have South Africa on board. We got on board. Long story short, uh, we sort of escalated to saying, well, uh, we will bid to host this thing because uh, there was proposals to say, who's going to now host this thing? We put in a proposal on behalf of South Africa and, and Africa in general. Well, thanks for being with us tonight and throughout the week. From me, Justin Roberts, and the rest of the Biz News team, have a great day further and a great weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. Cheerio.